All right, Hosea chapter 2. I'm going to begin reading at verse 14. And I will invite you uh, to stand with me for the reading of God's holy word as you are able. Hosea chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. And I'll read on through chapter 3 in its entirety, all the way to verse 5. The Lord is speaking, and he says, Therefore, behold... I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Accor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares Yahweh, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know Yahweh. And in that day I will answer, declares Yahweh, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel, and I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. Yahweh said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as Yahweh loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethech of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without aphod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek Yahweh their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to Yahweh and to his goodness in the latter days. God adds his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Please be seated. We are now in part three of the, what I'm calling the overture to the book of Hosea. And uh, for, there's several here that have not been here for the last couple of weeks. So I, I think everyone's aware of what an overture is in music, where uh, it's most commonly seen in operas, for example, where you have selections, samples of the musical themes that are going to be included throughout the entire work are revealed and all strung together into a beautiful composition. Well, these first three chapters are really the overture to the book of Hosea, as the themes that are going to be developed throughout the rest of the book are all here in sort of nutshell form. Uh, They're just little bits. They're not developed super uh, to to any great degree. 
but they are all here and will be explored then and, and expanded upon in the chapters to come. So uh, we looked at chapter one, where uh, Hosea's family life is, is laid out as the setting. It's, it's kind of like in an opera when the curtain goes up and you see the opening scene, all the scenery is there and you begin to get a, a feel for the setting of, of how uh, this whole story is going to unfold and where. And that's really what's happening in chapter one as Hosea's family life is explored and he's commanded to go and marry a woman who has a, who's a child of the times, who has a propensity towards immorality and um, he does so and has, has a son and the son's name is Jezreel and Jezreel means the Lord will sow. You saw that name again in the reading that we just did. And then uh, it seems quite obvious that she leaves him, is unfaithful to him, but she has another child. And this child the Lord, a daughter, the Lord says, you're going to name her Lo Ruhamah, which means no mercy. And you saw that referred to at the end of chapter two there. Lo Ruhamah, what a horrible name to name a child. No mercy. And then she's unfaithful again. And she has another son. And this one, the Lord says, you're going to name him Lo Ami, which means no people. You're not my people. Even perhaps an even worse name that you could name, in this case, the son. And you saw that referred to again in chapter two. So here's this horrible situation that Hosea is called upon to go marry this immoral lady, has a child, has there's two illegitimate children that come along, and here he is, and, and apparently at that point she's just gone. She just leaves him. And, you, and, and it's explained in this opening chapter that the Lord is saying, I'm, I want you to do this, Hosea, because I'm making a point about the unfaithfulness of my people Israel to you, to, uh, to, to me, uh, to me being the Lord. You, and what a, what a miserable situation that Hosea finds himself in. And then we get on into chapter 2, and in, in some ways, you might think, well, this is good news. At least she's not going to get away with it. But the beginning of chapter 2 focuses upon how really horrible the sins are of the children of Israel against God. And, and, and by extension, of course, the whole sin of adultery and unfaithfulness and all of that is 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 uh, is colored with that brush as well, so that you see just what a horrible thing Gomer has done. Well, think about the nation of Israel, whom God betrothed to Himself and redeemed out of Egypt, and brought uh, to uh, brought into a, a covenant relationship with Him. And Israel went out after other gods in its idolatry and a spiritual adultery, abandoned her God. And we noted last week focusing upon the, the judgment that was coming, uh, but noting also the enormity 
of her sins, that of, of idolatry and blasphemy and forgetting God as if God didn't exist living uh, with, with uh, uh, a sense of, a wrong sense of autonomy without recognizing their dependence upon him and their relationship to him. And we noted how severe the judgments were going to be upon Israel. And they were, were they not, in the exile. Um, her succeeding generations would look upon her and say, you blew it, you did it, you, you went after other gods, you, you did it wrongly. Um, the Lord himself would, would just say, you're not my people, I'm not having any mercy on you. I, essentially, you've walked away, you've broken the relationship, I'm not your husband any longer. What a terrible thing to say. And she would be exposed in her shame. And Israel certainly was. Israel of the time, and then we saw it again with the, the Pharisees as well, who, who said, oh, we've never been under bondage to anybody. And it's like, are you kidding? You're under bondage now. I mean, it's like, wake up. Um, you're under judgment. And they didn't even recognize it. Um, shame exposed. Um, and succeeding generations. Her, the Lord promises that succeeding generations would suffer, and certainly the nation of Israel has suffered throughout the centuries in bondage and servitude and in difficulty that, uh, well, many nations that used to be are no longer having suffered far less. It's only by God's mercy to and, and remembrance of his promises that the nation of Israel remains today. But the idols that she was worshiping, well, those were going to be proven empty. They, were, they couldn't do anything for her. The very things that uh, they, you know, they're in the land of milk and honey, but the Lord says, I'm cutting you off. And these were promises of, uh, that the Lord had said would, would take place back, you know, under, that Moses declared that if you don't worship me, if you're not faithful to me, uh, I'm going to make uh, your sustenance to be nothing. You're going to be you know, scratching. You know, it's only in recent, in recent, uh, uh, in the last 50 years or a little bit more, 50, 60 years, that uh, Israel has begun to return to some of its garden status. But a lot of that's just because of artificial irrigation. Um, it's, it's kind of hard to, you read the, you read the picture, the, the word pictures that come to mind of the land flowing with milk and honey and the grapevines and everything else and how fertile it was at that time. And you look at the pictures of Israel today and while there are spots that are like that, there's a whole lot of rock. They've had to work very hard through artificial means to re reclaim some of that, fer the fertility of the land. It's part of the curse that God would say said would come up on the land. And it'll remain that way until Israel returns to her Lord in, uh, and his Messiah. Because the sustenance is going to be removed and even her return will be joy, joyless. 
You know, think about it. It was a it was a joyful day back in 1947 for the nation of Israel when it was reestablished, was it not? For those of you, maybe there's a few here probably around that time. And if you've studied history, you know that there was great celebration and so on. And yet, since 1947, think about the the nation of Israel's re, uh, occupation of that land. Has it been peaceful? I mean, there's prosperity certainly because of industries and other things that are going on, but it has not been, though they've, they've tried, but the Lord's promise is where you're going to live in hardship and difficulty until you submit yourself to me. And it's been a fight since 1947 with precious few respites. So all of those things that the Lord said were going to take place have happened. And it seems kind of hopeless at least from the human side of things, without repentance. And yet, I'm thankful that this overture does not end on this incredibly minor key note of sorrow and melancholy. But rather, it ends, this, this overture, on uh, a note of hope and the uplift of uh, the major key that says, yes, all is well, all is full, all is right. And this is because of the Lord's work himself in the lives of his people. So, yes, the adulterous wife will be judged. And we also spent some time last time looking at just our own heart's conditions, right? That, you know, we name the name of God. We say we believe in the, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, all too often, we live in a way where we lift up idols in our own hearts. We attribute things to God that are not of him, and we forget him and leave him behind. And so we can experience similar kinds of judgments in our own lives as well. But beginning in verse 14 of chapter 2, a dramatic change happens. Therefore, he says, everybody knows what, that, that old saying about when you see a therefore, you should always ask what it's there for. Right? So you go back and look, and he's talking about all the punishment. I'm going to put an end to her mirth. I'm going to waste her vines. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to uh, uh, punish her for all of her idolatry and for forgetting me. Therefore, Behold, I will allure her. Just kind of try to wrap your head around why that therefore is there. Usually when you see a therefore, it's like, well, she, you would have expected in those previous verses something about her repentance, would you not? Her, her if, if nothing else, if, maybe not even repentance, but even a, Oh, even a bare minimum, she's going to turn over a new leaf. She's going, to, she's going to figure out, boy, what I've been doing is stupid. I'm going to turn back to my God. But you don't see any of that there. He's going to punish her. And then he says, therefore, I'm going to woo her back to me. So I'll tell you what I, what I think that therefore is therefore. It's not referring to Israel's actions. It's referring to God purging his people to, to drive them back to himself. 
to remind them who really is God. And therefore, on the basis of all that, that judgment that was, every bit of it was earned by Israel. And every judgment that comes upon us is earned by us in our sins. And yet, how often does the Lord lose, use trial and affliction and difficulty to drive us to the end of ourselves and to turn unto him? And to actually listen for a change. Some of you might be familiar with that wonderful poem called The Hound of Heaven. If you haven't ever read that, you should. Go read it sometime. Not now. <laughs> On your own time. But read The Hound of Heaven. And there the author describes the Lord's pursuit of him. And he, he likens God to this hound of heaven that will not let him go, that chases him. Every time he turns around, he hears the footfalls, hears the snarls, and, and he tries all kinds of things to find fulfillment, whether it's pleasure or, or wealth or position or it's just his own pride and, and so on. All these various things, it's very much like uh, the book of Ecclesiastes and may very well have been inspired by that, uh, that book. In any case, he just keeps describing it. No matter what he does, he's trying to, he thinks he's found happiness, but here comes this hound again and will not let him go. And he's fearful. He doesn't want to turn to God because if he turns to God, he, he's afraid that his entire life will be destroyed, that every pleasure of his will be undone, that all of his hopes and aspirations and dreams will never come to pass, that everything that he thinks is important for joy and for fulfillment will be undone if he should somehow surrender unto God. But it's the, the Lord's tenacity in pursuing him that finally wears him out in the poem. And he's like, finally, he just quits running and goes, fine, just eat me. Basically, it, he says it more poetically than that. But. And as he turns around, instead of seeing this snarling beast that is intent upon shredding him, he sees a loving God who has just been pursuing him the entire time. I think that that's what that therefore is there for. The Lord has been pursuing Israel through all of its unfaithfulness, through all of its idolatry, and basically saying, if you would just stop for a minute and look at who I am. And he says, I'm therefore... I've, I've done the work to get their attention. Now I'm going to woo them back. It's a beautiful picture that's there. The key verse, by the way, I think, in this section is verse 19. That, uh, kind of at the center of all of this. <clears throat> I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. It's that covenant loyalty that's being spoken of there. The loving kindness or steadfast love is the word chesed, which means uh, loyalty or covenant loyalty. And then the mercy there speaks to compassion. So it's not just a, a legal contract kind of covenant. All right, fine, I, have to, I made a promise, so I'll do it. Uh, but with genuine love and compassion on God's part, for his people. And that governs 
all of his actions regarding the nation of Israel. This is going to, these words are going to give Hosea a hint about how to respond when he gets the command that he does in just a little bit. You can, uh, you know, you can imagine Hosea's hurt at the unfaithfulness of his wife, the betrayal that was there, and the temptation to be um, vindictive could be great. But the Lord sets the tone, sets the, the pattern here. Because the Lord's, yes, his adulterous wife, Israel, will be judged. Those who claim his name in the church will be judged. But the Lord will destroy, will restore this marriage that was destroyed by the sins of men and women. The Lord will restore his marriage by his mercy. This mercy is seen uh, in many different ways. So let's take a look as we walk through this section. Verses uh, 14 and 15. <clears throat> this is the courtship. I'm going to allure her, bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to you. Now, to her. Into the wilderness sounds like, oh, that sounds like a punishment. But no, remember, because he's going to refer to Egypt in just a little bit. What was the wilderness uh, after Egypt? The wilderness was not a place of punishment. It was a place of deliverance. Away from the world, the world system, which Egypt really represents, particularly at that time, Egypt was it uh, in that part of the world. The wilderness was a place of deliverance, and that's what he's referring to here. I'm going to deliver out out of her bondage. You know, the the sad thing about sin and rebellion against God is that we think we are uh, like the author of The Hound of Heaven. We think that we are being free. We think that we are freeing ourselves. But actually, we're only placing ourselves more and more into bondage and dependence and servitude to our sin, to the world, um, to others. It's the Lord who brings us freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. But in our sinfulness, we've got our blinders on. We don't want to see that. So the Lord courts us. He reminds us when... Gentlemen, those of you who are married or maybe thinking that way, when you're courting, when you were courting your, your spouse, your bride, did you make an effort to uh, clean up a little bit before you saw her? Mostly. Some of you, maybe that's why it took you so long. <laughs> Did you put your best foot forward? Did you speak kindly to her? Did you, uh, and by kindly I mean not only in your responses to her, but by telling her of your love for her, of her, of her beauty, of her accomplishments, of how much you admire this, that, or the other thing about her? Or did you speak roughly to her? Did you um, uh, speak only of yourself? 
um, as you know the one who is the the uh, the center of everything. If you did, it's probably the woman you're sitting next to now is probably not the one because you learned from the first time that that doesn't work. To allure your bride means that you treat her tenderly. Yes, you remind her of what uh, of what uh, you have done for her and what you continue to do for her, but the focus is upon her. This is a remarkable thing, that the Lord, who truly is the God of all, who creates all, who sustains all, comes to the nation of Israel and comes to us, the weak, despised things of the world, and says to us, you are important to me. So important that I gave my son for you. So important that I sustain you. So important that I, that, that I have ordered all things for my glory and your good. It's a remarkable courtship, is it not? It says, I will bring, I will deliver her. I'll speak tenderly to her. I'll give her her vineyards. Here are the promises. You stick with me. This is what I will do for you. And the Valley of Accor, maybe that might trigger a memory in, in your minds. That reference comes from the book of Joshua, Chapter 7. In the book of Joshua, uh, as the nation of Israel is coming in uh, to the land in conquest, there's a guy named, uh, well, usually in English we say Achan, it would be Achan. Remember what Achan did? They went into this city that was supposed to be completely dedicated unto the Lord, the city of Ai. Everything was to be destroyed. Nothing was to be kept. Everything was holy unto him, but unto the Lord. But Achan went in there, and instead of piling up everything he saw in the big burn pile in the middle of town, he saw some great garments. He saw some gold. He saw some silver. He saw some other stuff, just a little bit. He took it, and he hid it in his tent. Remember that? And uh, when he did that, he brought trouble on Israel and upon his own house. And Israel, because Israel, they had taken, uh, they had been victorious. They were going to go in and complete the job. And they were defeated before this little podunk town is the picture you get. And they're like, what gifts, God? I thought you were with us. And the Lord said, you've got evil in your midst. And they figured out who it was, got it down to Achan. And of course, he was put to death, stoned with stones, he and his entire family and the trouble was taken care of and Israel went on to be victorious but that valley from that time part uh, that time forth was referred to as the valley of Accor the valley of trouble so when we look here and say we read and make the valley of Accor a door of hope what was Achan's problem greed lust after the things of the world, caused all kinds of trouble. Achan took all that stuff. Why? Because he had hope that it would increase his wealth, his prosperity, the security of his family. He was looking to those things that were dedicated unto the Lord to say, no, I want them instead because I know better 
how to keep my family than God does. And he was judged for that sin. The Lord says, I'm going to undo that and give you real hope in me. I'm going to turn the trouble around. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt and delivered into the wilderness. So there's mercy in this courtship that is revealed. The Lord doesn't have to do any of this. The Lord doesn't have to show compassion on Israel at all. They've deserved their judgment because of their idolatry. But the Lord says, no, I'm going to turn around their troubles and restore their fortunes. Then there's mercy in his tenderness. Look at verse 16. This is interesting. Um, interesting verse. In that day, declares Yahweh, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. Now, Baal is a general title for, and it means Lord. But it referred basically to the lords or the gods of the Canaanites. And you'll notice that... Um, that uh, it's quite a generic sort of term so that later on when the Lord says they're not going to remember the names of the Baals. We were talking about uh, the names of demonic uh, beings and so on in Sunday school. And here's an indication of, of how <clears throat> they have names. Uh, the Israelites were worshiping them by name. Um, when they worship the Baals or the Baals, they're... But they, they knew their names. There were names there. So the only people that are actually naming the names of demons are those who are idolaters, not believers in God who are trying to throw them out. That's a different sidelight, but if you were in Sunday school, you know what we're talking about there. But in any case, what's the, what, what is going on there? I, I, I've, if you're filling in the blanks on this on your, in your notes there, I put mercy in tenderness. You know, at our, at our ceremony yesterday, it was a reminder in Ephesians chapter 5 of, of a wife's submission to the husband and the command to the husband to love his wife. Because guys have, can have a tendency to just want to be the Baal instead of being the husband. They just want to be the Lord and not be... Not, not capital L, but just the Lord and Master, and instead of the husband, which, who, who tends and cares for and nourishes. And there's a tenderness in that word husband that is absent in the term master. So the Lord says, I've had to treat you as a master, but that is going to end, and I will treat you as a husband treats his wife with tenderness and graciousness and patience and nurturing. So there's mercy in that tenderness that's there. There's mercy in verse 17. Um, I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth and they shall be remembered by name no more. This, I, I, I put here a mercy in faith. That Essentially, the Lord is saying, I'm going to restore you to orthodox faith and practice. <laughs> to be kind of, you know, theological in that description. But what that basically means is, 
It's not, he doesn't even say to them, I command you to put the names out of your mouth. He says, I'm going to take them out of your mouth. You're not going to remember them anymore. You're going to be so, uh, so uh, engaged in your love and relationship with me that you won't remember those other gods that you ran after. I'm going to take those away from you. You know, a right faith, the faith once delivered unto the saints, it's, it's not that we don't remember the pit from which we were digged or dug, but we don't dwell on those things. I, honestly, there's far too many Christians that are way too fascinated with the demonic realm. They just want to dig into all that, and it's like, that's dangerous stuff. Quit trying to remember what God has undone and fill your heart and mind with him. And the Lord says, I will do that for you. That's mercy. Because our propensity is to go back and wallow in the mire instead of coming out and being clean and rejoicing in the goodness that our God is. So mercy is shown there that he will do that for us, that we can't do. He puts that faith in us. And in fact, uh, that kind of, it kind of goes to what Paul, Paul says in the book of Ephesians also, um, you know, that faith is a gift of God. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. So that's basically what's being said here. I'm going to take that, I'm going to, I'm going to fill your heart and mind with what's true. And that's me. Then there's mercy. Look at verse 18. It says, I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds and the creeping things of the ground. Remember what one of the curses on the, on the land of Israel was? If they were going to sin. Beasts of the field. Flying things, insects, hornets along with brambles and thistles and everything else that would make life difficult. But one of the curses was bringing lots of wild beasts, lots of, lots of, uh, of uh, hostile creatures that would make living there difficult. And the Lord's saying, I'm taking all of that. I will be taking all of that away. I will restore to you a land of peace where you live in peace and safety. You don't have to worry about the lion crouching in the thicket or the, the hornets that would drive you out. You remember that uh, what the Lord said to Joshua and the people when they were going into the land of Canaan, he said, don't despair. I'm going to drive out the, the inhabitants as you walk faithfully and obediently to me. I'm going to send hornets and I'm going to send, send lions and bears and, you know, and all of that. Try not to go into the oh my part. But... I'm going to send these things ahead of you, kind of like my advance guard, to begin to drive the inhabitants out of the land and set up shop for you. I'll do the fighting for you. And that's really what we have here. This is mercy shown in the security that the Lord is promising to them. You know, gentlemen, when you get married, one of your the right correct desires is to provide for your families, is it not? For security, 
um, in both physical sense and financial sense and emotional sense and all those kinds of things. And that's right and proper. Our Lord is promising in his wooing back of Israel, I'm going to keep you in safety. I'm going to make a covenant with those birds and beasts and creeping things. I'm going to abolish war from the land. Clearly, the promises that are here are still yet to come. There have been periods of peace there. And even in our, struggle, in our daily life, as we are, uh, as, and I'm going to refer to this a little bit later, but uh, as we are recipients of those promises made even unto Abraham, um, yeah, we struggle back and forth, and all of these promises have yet to be ultimately fulfilled. But they are coming. So there is security that is there. And look at uh, verse 19, verses 19 and 20. I will betroth you to me forever. That what I said was the kind of the key verse of this. Uh, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know Yahweh. This uh, comes, uh, and also if you look at verses 4 and 5, might as well look at verses 4 and 5 of chapter 3. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without aphod or household gods. This is speaking of the exile. And afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek Yahweh their God and David their king. They shall come in fear to Yahweh and to his goodness in the latter days. So we have, there's a messianic promise here, which we'll explore a little bit more in a moment. But here's God's mercy spoken to Israel. This, his, his bride who was unfaithful, who wandered away from him over and over again, not just once, but over and over again, just like Gomer did. Unsatisfied, unfulfilled in the God who redeemed her. But the Lord says, no, I'm going to show mercy in that our union, our betrothal, uh, betrothal in those days uh, we equate to engagement but it was much stronger than that if you were betrothed you were married apart from the final physical consummation of it all you were considered married and the Lord says it's permanent, it's done, I will show mercy to you you didn't have any obligation to do that from the, certainly at least based upon Israel's activities. But he makes that promise, that ultimate redemption. Then take a look at verses 21 and 22. In that day I will answer, declares Yahweh, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth, the earth shall answer the grain, they shall answer Jezreel. What is all that going on? It's basically the Lord saying, I'm going to set up, you know, right now, You've all heard about these supply chain issues that we're having, right? The Lord here is describing the supply chain. Heaven to earth, earth to the crops, crops to the harvest. And the Lord's saying, I'm going to put all that in motion. Jezreel, again, the name of the first son, the Lord called it, means God will sow. God will sow. And basically, He's saying the promise in that name will come to pass. All the things that you thought you were going to get by worshiping all the idols, I'm going to give you. Because the idols can't. I shut up everything 
from you. I stopped the supply chain. Talking about supply chain issues. This is from the hand of God who interrupted the supply chain for the nation of Israel. And who interrupts our supply chain, not of the, you know, you know, Amazon and FedEx and whatever, but the supply chain that we long for and being connected to him and fellowship with him and being satisfied in him. What, and we want peace and safety and all those things, but we look for them everywhere else but him. The Lord says, you're not going to get it until you submit to me. But when you do, oh, that, that supply chain is going to be an express. You'll have everything in abundance that you need. So this mercy is going to be shown in God's provision for them. And then look at verse 23. I will sow her for myself in the land. So he, so he switches that God will sow to not just things that are agriculturally related, but planting Israel in the land so that she can flourish. And, and what will that look like? He says, well, I'll have mercy on no mercy, and that's lo ruhamah. So he's referring back to those children, the children of adultery from Gomer that represent Israel in their, in their fallen uh, and uh, shameful position before God. He says, I will have mercy on those who are named no mercy. And I will say to not my people, that's the son, lo ami, you are my people. And, and he, that is lo ami, uh, shall say, you are my God. Ultimate promise of restoration that is there. So there's a, a mercy, whereas before, remember, God said, I'm not your husband. I'm not acknowledging you. As far as, you, know, you, you don't even exist in some ways. Disowned. Here, mercy is shown in acknowledgement of their love relationship and their covenant bond. Incredible restoration that is being spoken of. This, this mercy will be referred to and developed further in the book as we go along. But over and over again in all these things, courtship, tenderness, faith, security, betrothal, identity, provision, all of them, the Lord is saying, I'm, this is what I'm wooing you with. This is what I'm alluring you back with. And, and just to make sure nobody... Uh, gets it wrong, he says, okay, Hosea, let's, let's get this a visual aid. He's already done the visual aid with Hosea and Gomer to begin with. Now he's going to complete the visual aid. And he tells Hosea to go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as Yahweh loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So, put yourself in Hosea's place. You know, the first time, this didn't work out real well. Hosea does what he's told. But you've got to wonder about how eager he was to do it. I hope he was eager. He's not told. Uh, it seems at least he was determined, as in his conversations with Gomer... Uh, it seemed that he was bound to determine that he would do all that he could and called her to do all that she could to make it work. But uh, he is to go court her. 
Go love a woman. Not go, just go get her again and put up with her. But go love her again. That's a tall order. But it speaks to this, the, the courtship that, that God does with his people, that God does with us when we sin. And he calls us back to himself. Yes, there are periods of judgment, there's periods of affliction, there's consequences for our sins. But through his word, through his people, through the church, through the circumstances of our lives, he continually shows us of his love for us as he calls us back to himself. So in the marriage of, court, uh, marriage of, of Hosea here, the courtship is important. It's not just, all right, I'm going to go find her and drag her home again and put up with her. He used to love her. Secondly, notice this redemptive aspect that's here. Now this, we look at this and in our, in our modern sensibilities, we start to recoil when we read these words like, he bought her, what is she, a piece of property? What do you think he's First of all, quit interpreting scripture with modern eyes. Look back on what it, the context, that will help you. Um, it's too easy to impose our values today on them. This is not about slavery at all. It's nothing to do with slavery. This has to do with a bride price. It has to do with you know, something that's a cultural thing that we don't know anything about. It's not about slavery. It's about um, essentially um, paying, uh, uh, paying the guy who uh, she's living with now um, to, to basically let her go. Now, this is something that's totally, totally foreign to the way that we think about this. She's not been living in a marriage relationship. The fact is, probably, the guy that she's been living with has probably been treating her like a slave. Not, they're not married. She's been living as an immoral woman with this other guy. And so Hosea goes in and says, um, he's not owning her. He's just saying, the other guy maybe is treating her like a piece of meat, but Hosea's not. He pays the price that's necessary to, to free her from her obligation to uh, this other guy that she has hooked herself up with. So he buys her, buys he he buys her for fifteen shekels. He pays this price. He redeems her for fifteen shekels of silver and some barley. This matter of redemption is a big theme in the book of Hosea. Turn over, if you will, to the book of Galatians. I told you I was going to. I mentioned something about promises to Abraham before. In Galatians chapter three. Beginning at verse 7, we read this. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, <clears throat> those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, Gomer was under a curse. She thought she was being free, but she'd really placed herself in bondage to somebody else. 
Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one's justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. In other words, you just spend your life going, you know, ticking off the boxes. I did that, I did that, I did that. Okay, Lord, are you happy now? Uh, pretty miserable way to live because there's way too many boxes for us to check and we never do them right anyway. Uh, let's see. The one who does live by faith. Okay, so verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For Hosea to go and pay the bride price for a woman of Gomer's character and reputation. What do you think that did to his reputation? Uh, he would not be looked upon really favorably by the community. At best, they might think he was a fool. And at worst, someone who would put up with that kind of immorality must be immoral himself. The, the, the tarnishment of her sin would be laid on him by his paying that price. And yet that's precisely what Christ did for us. He came, he paid the price by dying on the cross, paying the blood price that was necessary for us to be redeemed from the power of sin and death, taking upon himself the curse and becoming sin for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. The Lord here is speaking of his, the redemption of his people. And not just Israel, but all those who are in Abraham. As, we, as Paul says here in Galatians chapter 3, because they're knit together with the one who is the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one for whom Abraham looked, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And look then how it ends in verse 3. As Hosea makes this pledge back to her, um, I, um, you must dwell with me, as mine for many days, you shall not play the whore belong to another man, so I will also be to you. Here's the covenant renewed between Hosea and his wife. It's a beautiful picture. And this is the promise that God is making to his people. So, as he says there in verse 4 and 5, which I referred to a little bit earlier, that though they were in exile for a long time, suffering under the judgment of as the consequences of their actions, they would ultimately be restored. They will seek Yahweh their God and David their king. Of course, David's long gone. So this is clearly a reference to the son of David that's promised in the Psalms who would come and fill his father's throne. And that, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, very clearly show is all fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, son of David. All right. The book of Hosea is about redemption. And we're going to be exploring that redemption theme uh, in uh, the days to come as we march through this book over the next couple of months. Looking forward to that with you. Um, and, uh, you know, 
it, it's just, it, in some ways it doesn't make any sense. Uh, the, uh, a, a good friend of mine, um, theologian and uh, author, professor named Michael Barrett, uh, wrote on this section here, humanly speaking, Hosea's love for Gomer did not make any sense. But that is the very point of the message. God's love for sinners does not make any sense apart from his free and sovereign grace. Then he goes on to note that Hosea's preaching here throughout this chapter, throughout this book, is going to focus on three things. God's love for Israel was initiated by divine love, not on the basis of their merit. That God's love was rejected by Israel. And finally, that love was maintained, wasn't lost, by divine loyalty. So the focus upon Hosea or Gomer's redemption by Hosea pictures the redemption of Israel and those who are hidden um, in the promises of Abraham because of Christ. It's his loyalty that does it all from start to finish. It's his love that does it all from start to finish. And it's a glorious, uh, actually, uh, I was thinking about, well, should I change up a little bit of what I'm preaching about since we're coming up to Christmas and so on? It's like, what better thing to talk about as we think about the coming of our Lord when we think about his love, his redemption, and his loyalty, all of which is what prompted Christ to come in the first place. So we'll be motoring on through Hosea through this season and looking forward to that. Hosea's home life demonstrates uh, all of these truths vividly and in our own experiences as well. We can take comfort in God's abiding love for us and mourn for the continual sin that demands God's forbearance lest we be destroyed. Let us praise our God, dear friends, that he is a saving God who delights to redeem us and make us his own. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your mercies to us, which are new every morning. Thank you that your faithfulness never fails. We thank you that you love us and continue to pursue us when we are most wretched. Lord, help each of us to walk by faith in Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, and not strive to please you according to our own power or wisdom. Let us cast ourselves upon you for your mercy. For Lord, apart from you, truly we would be rightly named no mercy and no people. But because of your grace and mercy and love, we may know your mercy. And we may know what it means to be your people. Thank you, Father, for redeeming us through Jesus Christ. I pray that you would grant that faith uh, for all of us, that you would take away the names of the idols of this world, and the idols of our hearts, and fill us with the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And we pray these things in his blessed name.